are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up and welcome to another Monday edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Today we'll be chatting with John Corrales from Locked On Celtics. The Boston Celtics have clawed back from down 0-3 in the Eastern Conference Finals and have a chance to make NBA history on their home court here in Game 7 of the Conference Finals. Then we chat with David Ramil from Locked On Heat to see the other side of the coin and why things have gone downhill so quickly for Miami after being up 3-0 on the Celtics, why Jimmy Butler is struggling in these past few games and what needs to happen for the Heat to get the Game 7 win. Lastly, we'll chat with Brandon Scott from Locked On Wizards. The Wizards have brought in former Clippers GM Michael Winger as their new president of basketball operations. How the new front office is likely to approach this offseason, the futures of Bradley Beal, Kristaps Porzingis, Kyle Kuzma, and more. Now, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code Locked On. That's PrizePix.com, promo code Locked On. And as always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day and your first listen every single day. Free available wherever you listen to your podcasts and on YouTube. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Celtics, John Corrales. You can track down wherever you listen to your podcasts and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Celtics. And John, despite all the odds stacked against them, the Celtics have managed to force a Game 7. They've brought things back to Boston, a chance to return to the NBA Finals on the line. And it all came down to a last-second tip-in by Derek White. Walk us through that final play, how the players reacted to it, how you reacted to it, just the insanity of the ending of Game 6. Okay, well, it's going to take about half an hour. Now, I, I, <laughs> so I'm at, I'm at the Kaseya Center, but I'm, at, I'm up. I'm high up. So I see the tip-in, but I can't tell what's happening. And the weird thing is, is there are a lot of Celtics fans there, so the Jumbotron shows the replay, and I hear initially a roar from the crowd that makes me think, ah, it was late. But then a half second later, the Celtics are all jumping up and down. I was like, oh, damn, those were Celtics fans reacting, and the Celtics have won this game. Uh, watching that play is just it, – it's kind of amazing in, in a part that's that no one's really discussing for, for good reason because it didn't really matter at this point. But Jason Tatum was flying down the right side, and the Celtics, it felt like upon review, the Celtics were winning that game no matter what. Either Marcus Smart's shot was going to fall or it was coming off one way. It came off Derek White's way and he got the he got the putback. Jason Tatum was there at the front slash right side of the rim for a putback. So it was just a matter of could he have finished? After the game, everybody was just in shock. It was just a bunch of, I've never seen Jason Tatum as like, raw and unfiltered. He's one of the most composed post-game players in the NBA. And he was just sitting there like, wow, did you guys see that? Like, it was just a kind of an amazing kind of attitude. The, the guys are, are obviously elated, but I think everybody understands exactly what happened there and exactly how fortunate they are to have a game seven. What has been kind of the major difference in your eyes between games one and three in this series where the Celtics went down 0-3 and how they've been able to mount this this comeback and force a game seven winning these last three in a row? A lot of it's on the defensive end. Um, 
Now I could say in games four and five that they they shot the ball really, really well. And in games one through three, they didn't. But in game six, they shot their it was their worst shooting performance of the entire season. And they still managed to win that game, which is when you look at the statistics, everything was in Miami's favor, except for Boston's points in the paint. And they just found a way to play just enough defense to give themselves a chance at the end. And I think when you look at games four and five, especially, they forced a ton of turnovers. They they turned those into points. And in this game, six, they really did a good job bothering Jimmy Butler. Now he had a horrible game outside of the fourth quarter. Well, it seems like everybody got a block on Jimmy Butler in this game at one point or another. Yeah, yeah. And they look, they've they've done a really good job. Like Jimmy is probably gassed. But also give credit to the Celtics defense and give credit to the Celtics defense on Bam Adebayo because they've they figured out how to play those two guys and play them well. Now, if the Celtics can figure out how to do that and play Caleb Martin and Gabe Vincent, then they can win game seven by 40. But Gabe Vincent and, and uh, Caleb Martin seem to continue to carry on, uh, carry Miami to to keeping them close. How much credit do you give to Joe Missoula for kind of figuring things out as this series went along and, and kind of figuring out ways to continue to bother and make life really difficult for Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo? Yeah, I think that he deserves plenty of credit. Like he des- he deserved some of the blame in games one through three, but you can't sit there and be one of those guys that says, fire Missoula, and then when they pull off three in a row, say he had nothing to do with it. He had plenty to do with it. And I think, look, one of the things that in Boston in the middle of the season was, hey, why isn't Derek White playing down the stretch in the fourth quarter? Now, here he is playing the most crucial minutes of the of the season, making the biggest play of the season at the end of a game. So the lineup adjustment is big. The uh, defensive adjustments, uh, it, uh, th- those are big. Uh, the just changing up the starting lineups and stuff like that, calling calling some some really key timeouts even, which is one of the things that he's just been criticized oh, for. He, he, seeing the one timeout where he comes like flying down the baseline, like does like a yeah. karate jump midair to call the timeout. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, yeah, <laughs> that was an emphatic one. That counted for two. So yeah, Joe Mazzula has done done a pretty good job. He's learning on the fly. He's, he's figuring things out. And the Celtics, you know, for for all of their like experience in in these situations, they're still twenty five and twenty seven or twenty six. There's still some youth there to these guys, and and there's you know uh, some level of hey, we're kind of still figuring these things out going on. So Missoula definitely gets his fair share of the credit here, you know, deservedly so. What needs to happen here in Game Seven for Boston to be able to repeat and have another trip to the finals? Just gonna come out strong. You know, I, I don't think Miami has much left. They have, uh, they they might have a few good minutes left to start the game. They're going to come out strong. They're going to come out, you know, even no matter how gassed you are, the first quarter is still, you. you that's when you have the most energy. If the Celtics can come out and play them tough and throw the, throw the first punch rather than take the first punch, go up by 10, 12, 15 early on in the game. I don't know that Miami's going to have it in them to come back. Uh, just keep playing with a good, good pace. Push the ball. Trust that 
Joe Missoula can lean on some of the depth. And maybe Missoula leans into some of the other guys that that haven't played much just for a couple of minutes just to keep the pace going and say the talent is not quite there. Maybe you don't want to go 9, 10 deep at that point. But also when everybody's tired, use the fresh legs to keep pushing that pace and put the pressure on, and that can negate whatever talent issue there might be. So just play with that good pace, throw that first punch, and I don't know that Miami has anything left if Boston goes up by 20. Boston has a chance to become the first team in history to come back from a 3-0 deficit. They're also the first team in history to have a chance to do it on their home court. Who has more pressure on them in this Game 7, John? Is it Miami, who was up? 3-0 and has now let three games slide and let it get to a game seven? Or is it Boston who's had to fight and claw their way back to a game seven on their own home court? I mean, is it is it okay to say it's both teams? Because I think both teams have, like, Miami has a ton of pressure on them. You were up 3 nothing. You have four chances to win one game. You should do it. But Boston is at home in a game seven. Throw out the fact that you just had to win three games in a row. This is why you get home court. You're at home in a game seven against the eighth seed. So you better win that game. So both teams have a fair amount of pressure on them and will be open to a good amount of criticism. I guess you can say maybe 51-49 Boston because Boston shouldn't have even been in this position in the first place. And if they if they have done all of this only to go home and lose a game seven, that would be pretty bad. So... As the more I talk, the more pressure I put on the Celtics. <laughs> um, but it, it is there is a, a somewhat even distribution between both teams. Will Boston be able to make history and win Game Seven and return to the NBA Finals? You're going to have us covered for all of that and more. The results of this game and further over at Locked On Celtics, John. I appreciate you stopping my Locked On NBA with me. You got it. Thanks, man. Coming up, the other side of the coin, why have things gone so poorly over these last three games in this series for the Miami Heat? Why have they been unable to close things out yet? And how has the series extended to seven games? Why is Jimmy Butler currently struggling so much? We're going to get there in just one moment. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. It's Eastern Conference Finals Game 7, and I think I'm taking Jason Tatum to score more than 26.5 points. Or what about Bam Adebayo to have more than 7.5 rebounds? How about Jimmy Butler to have less than 6.5 assists? Or what about Jalen Brown to have fewer than 3.5 three-pointers made? So what is prize picks? It's daily fantasy sports, but how does it work? Basically, you pick two to six players. If they score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 25 times back on your money on any entry you submit. There's no competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available. And PrizePix offers projections on any sport that you watch. That's not just the NBA. They've got you for NFL, MLB, NHL, everything. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that simple. They're safe. They offer fast withdrawals. Currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. And right now, every day of the NBA playoffs and finals, one PrizePix user will win a chance at becoming a millionaire. But you have to download the app to find out how. So download the PrizePix app or go to prizepix.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code locked on. That means if you deposit $100, PrizePix will give you $100. If you deposit $50, PrizePix will give you $50. So don't forget to enter promo code locked on at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100.
And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday. As always, thanks for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day. Be sure to stay tuned in throughout the week as you have it covered for all of the playoff action. Who will ultimately be the winner between the Heat and Celtics in advance to face the Denver Nuggets in the NBA Finals? We'll keep you covered right here at Locked On NBA. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Heat, David Ramil, who you can track down wherever you listen to your podcasts and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Heat. And David, we are headed for a Game 7, which seemed unthinkable just a few games ago with where this series was early on, Miami going up 3-0, and to lose in the way that they lost Game 6 on their home floor. You get Jimmy Butler hits the clutch free throws, and then Derek White with the last second tip in how do you even begin to unpack what that does for this series the momentum that it gives boston headed back to game seven on their home court all of that it's a it's a next to impossible you, you have to kind of just focus on the next step because i i think you know everybody wants to harp and, and rightfully so it was an incredible moment the last few seconds of the game there and what happened with Derek white's layup and at the same time they wouldn't have been in that position had jimmy butler and bam Adebayo play to the level that we've expected to see them over the course of the playoffs. And both of those players admitted that in their post-game press conference. And so I, I think the focus is just saying, you know what? They play better. Miami has a chance to win. As unlikely as that is, that's the focus moving forward. Everything that happened in game six, everything that's happened in the three previous games, none of it matters. You go to game seven and you look at that as the start of a new series with a chance at 48 minutes and advancing into the NBA finals. That's the only way you can look at it because if you start to focus on what happened at the end of game six, you'll never get out of your own head. You'll never be able to compete at a high level. And that's what this group expects themselves to do. I, I know you just said that the previous games kind of don't matter. You have to crumple it up, throw it out. But what what lessons can this Heat team maybe learn from these past three games, the, the past three losses, compared to earlier in the series, right, where they, they won the first two games and then they were dominant in that yeah. third game, right, just completely blew out Boston. And then it kind of seems like the tables have just been turned over these last three games. Well, I think water rises to its level, right? And I think we saw Boston playing poorly over the course of those first three games and kind of rediscovered their identity. I've said it before on the podcast, they've out Miami'd miami and the way that they've brought their intensity, they're playing with more intent. That's a big word that we've seen over the course of the series. Just You, you can't waste any kind of moments. You can't uh, you know, ha- go out there for possessions and just expect things to happen. You have to go and make those things happen in your favor. And Boston has done that much more effectively over the last three games. We saw it kind of even out to an extent in game six. At least that was my takeaway from that is that Miami wind up playing more effectively. They didn't look as lost as they had in games four and five. And again, they put themselves in a position where they could have won easily had Jimmy and Bam that shot 24% combined from the floor. So I, I think that's that's the focus there is that Boston has done really well. Miami has kind of figured it out. You approach this with the same level of intensity you showed in the first three games and what you showed for half of the game seven, six, excuse me, and maybe you have yourself a chance there to, to escape with a win in Boston. Very unlikely, but that's the focus. Jimmy showed up, you know, multiple times late mm-hmm. in that game six, the clutch free throws, the big three-pointer late in the game, all that. But, but yet another game where he's, you know, the – the efficiency's not there. He looks like he's really struggling. He's getting swatted yeah. left, right, and center by seemingly every player on the Celtics roster at this point. What has kind of changed for Jimmy specifically? Is there something that the Celtics defense is, is keying in on more with him that's making it harder for him to get to his spots or be comfortable when he's taking his shots? 
they've been much more physical with him. Uh, I think they've also stopped biting on his pump fakes. It was a good way for him to create space. And I think as much as Celtics fans might not think that's the case, I, I've given full credit to Boston. I also think that there is some lingering impact from his injury and everything else. As much as he's played, like he's played so many long stretches over the course of this postseason, I, I think he it's starting to take its toll on him. Like even yesterday as he was entering his postgame press conference, sitting down, he was aching. He was complaining. He looked like he was 70 as he was about to sit down for his postgame presser. So I, I think that's certainly an impact. It's not an excuse. It really is just an explanation. I think he's hurt. He doesn't have the same lift he showed earlier in the postseason when he was dominating against Milwaukee. He had 11 shots that he missed in the paint. 11 in the paint. That's unbelievable. For him to be as good as he was earlier in the postseason and for him to look relatively human, normal, maybe even mediocre. Yeah, he had that fourth quarter, but he looked completely lost for the first three quarters of the game. Uh, just not very effective. He started off with three of 19. Not a good way for him to go out. So I, I think they've done a great job of defending him, putting more pressure on him, keeping him away from his his preferred spots. They've done a really good job of putting Jason Tatum on him. His length and size has been a problem for Jimmy to overcome. Even he's not been able to take advantage of any kind of mismatches. He keeps seeking them versus Derek White or Al Horford, and they've responded as well as you could po possibly expect. Both of those blocking his shots, Robert Williams blocking a three-point attempt. It hasn't been a good series for Jimmy. I think that's an understatement. But you hope that maybe he has some way of, of finding a way to muster whatever he can for game stuff. On the other side, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, they got to the foul line combined 25 times <laughs> in game six. How much of that was just poor defense, poor defensive execution by Miami versus just a, a favorable whistle maybe going their way a little bit in game six? I, I don't think you really want my opinion on that because I, <laughs> I, I tend to see it more as the latter. I, I think there were, you look at the replays and I know that's kind of, you know, that you're always going to find some fault in it if you slow it down. Uh, at the same time, there were a number of calls there where it, it looked like Tatum was like falling out of bounds, not due to any kind of push or contact or anything like that. He gets called for a whistle. The whistle has been officially, it's kind of been uneven. I never point to officiating as a problem, and I won't do that right now. But I think when you're asking about the number of trips to the line, I think you have to look at it as, as that Boston has a clear edge in that department. You would have thought that Jimmy would be able to even it out. That wasn't the case. 15 trips alone for Jason Tatum. Who's allowed? And I'll be quite frank. He's allowed to throw his shoulder to create space when he's on. He's got a smaller defender, even a bigger defender. We see Jalen Brown doing the same thing when Gabe Vincent switches onto them. Tatum and Brown both create space by throwing that right elbow, and all of a sudden, hey, they've got an unchecked jumper available to them. You know, there's a reason why. And if you apply any kind of pressure on them, they're going to get the whistle. You know, it is what it is. Again, I don't look at that as anything, but you have to accept it. You have to live with it. 24% is the number I'm looking for. If Bam and Jimmy shoot 40 or 50%, this is completely, the game's over and all of a sudden Miami's in the finals. What needs, and you know, maybe maybe you just, you might as well just have answered the question right there, but I mean, what, what specifically are you looking for that needs to happen in game seven here in Boston for Miami to, to walk away with a win and get themselves back to the finals? There really isn't anything specific. Uh, again, playing with that purpose, playing with intent, uh, shooting better. But they got their shots yesterday. All Everything that they needed in order to escape with a win in Game 6 was there. They shot better than 40% from three-point range. They kept their turnovers down, only five for the whole game. They played as good a game as you possibly could expect. The difference was Jimmy and Bam. So if you get them playing better, you're going to get a win. And I think that's the reality of it. Now, you also, on the other side of things, you had Boston shooting their worst three-point percentage of the season. I, I think that's no, uh, you know, you can't overlook that. That was, certainly was a factor. A lot of those were open looks. Miami did a very good job contesting those as well. 
you have to keep it going. That's basically it. They, they got the game plan, what they wanted out of game six. I'm not sure that they can duplicate it in game seven. Again, it's going to be a miraculous effort for them to escape with a win, considering that they're the road team there. But if there's a team that has any chance at all, I'd like Miami's chances because they've just shown over the course of the postseason that they have the grit, the tenacity, all the intangibles that got them there in the first place. I don't know. Maybe they're they're one step away from escaping, uh, being on the wrong side of history. Who knows? Who has more pressure here in this Game 7? Is it Miami, who was up 3-0 and then let the series get to a Game 7? Or is it Boston, who clawed their way back from a 3-0 deficit and has a chance to advance on their home court? You know, I, I, I that's a tough question. That's a really good one to think about because I, I you would think that Boston understands what's at stake, but they're playing so much uh, less pressure-free at this point. You know, they're, they are totally relaxed. As you were walking to the Heat locker room, you could hear the cheers coming from the Celtics locker room. They they got a big win yesterday, and again, they have three straight. So I don't think they're feeling any pressure. And again, being at home, I don't think they. I think they're going into it almost as you know what we we can afford to take our our foot off the gas to an extent because we have all these advantages. We're playing so much better than Miami has over the last three games. So I think Miami's feeling all the pressure again. They go into the road, but. This is also a team that, strangely enough, like to use a quote from Eric Spolstra, this is a very gnarly group. They love that kind of pressure. They really love to be put on the spot, to be counted out, and to find a way to overcome those doubts. So it's it's kind of even. Both teams have a seeming equal amount of pressure, and at the same time, both of them free of that pressure to just go out. You got one game. Miami wasn't supposed to be in this place and this spot in the first place, and for them to be here with a chance at Game Seven, that's as good a you know good odds as you can hope for, considering they're the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. So I don't know. Uh, I I would say it's even odds there as far as the amount of pressure both teams have. One game left with a trip to the NBA Finals on the line. Of course, you'll have us covered for the results of that game and much more over at Locked On Heat. David, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Absolutely, anytime. Coming up, the Wizards are bringing in former Clippers GM Michael Winger as their new president of basketball operations. What does this say about the new direction of the franchise moving forward? Should Wizards fans be excited about this addition to the Wizards front office? We're going to get there in just one moment. And final segment here at Locked On NBA Monday. As always, thanks so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day each and every day. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Wizards, Brandon Scott. You can track down wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Wizards. And Brandon, the Wizards have found their replacement for Tommy Shepard, hiring former Clippers general manager Michael Winger to oversee basketball operations moving forward. Let's start right there. and. What about Winger's run with the Clippers should give Wizards fans confidence uh, that this was the right guy to replace Tommy Shepard moving forward for the organization? Well, I mean, overall, if you look at his track record, man, you know, the L.A., you know, he he, he comes from great pedigree. You know, Oklahoma City, he was under Sam Presti. You know, in Cleveland, he was under Danny Ferry. And, you know, what he was able to do for the Clippers was miraculous in my opinion because they were able he or rather he was able to kind of navigate around cap issues not having a lot of draft picks and it's kind of the situation the Wizards are in you know we've had to use a lot of first rounders and a lot of years to get talent to surround whether it was John Wall or Bradley Bill and the cap situation you know um you know with the likelihood of Kyle Kuzma and or KP coming back you know we could be strapped cat wise especially when you consider Daniel Gaffer's on an extension and you still have other guys on contract deals 
So, you know, his his ability to navigate around the salary cap is intriguing to me. You know, I, I love his track record in L.A. You know, we were talking about this for a moment before we hit the record button, but uh, Tommy Shepard kind of operating as both the president of B-Ball Ops and the general manager, right, holding both titles. Whereas the Wizards now are going to have Michael Winger occupying the b-ball ops side of things, and then he's also being given permission to go out there and hire his lead executive. So now you'll have two you'll have two voices in the room as opposed to just one with Tommy Shepard. How how beneficial is that to have kind of two kind of thought process, two guys in the war room making decisions as opposed to it just all falling on the shoulders of one man? Well, it's kind of two big areas: competency and oversight. You know, you have two opinions. Two perspectives now instead of just one guy holding both titles. So, you know, you have oversight. You know, one guy can say, look at a, a potential deal and say, you know, maybe we can get more. Maybe we shouldn't spend so much. You know, you need more than one eye in the front office. And I think that with, you know, with him coming in here, with again, with his track record in L.A. and bringing in his, his choice of a GM, you know, you bring a high level of competency in his front office, which to me, you know, the top down approach with Washington. You know, you bring in the front office, you know, you revamp scouting. And then you go work with the roster. But, you know, this is definitely progress in D.C. because we're bringing in great leadership in the front office. So it's good signs to me because, like I said, you know, again, competency, but also oversight because you don't have one guy who's making all of the deals. You have a couple of guys in there who can kind of, you know, brainstorm with each other and look at deals from different perspectives. Who are some of the names right now that the Wizards and the Winger could be taking a look at to kind of fill that that GM role moving forward? Um, I, I would actually highlight one main name that really has been popping up a lot in D.C. is Will Dawkins out of uh, Oklahoma City. You know, he has familiarity with uh, Winger and with Sam Presti. And I think that it would be a win-win because, you know, if you combine both of these guys in the front office, and again, look at the pedigree. Sam Presti is, is a very impressive GM. And, you know, just Winger alone with his work with Danny Ferry and Presti. So I think that he would be the best candidate for the position. Now, there's been other names, you know, Trajan Langdon out of uh, North, New Orleans, which I, at this point I don't think is, you know, a realistic goal. So I'll definitely look at Will Dawkins. I think if I would put my money on it, he would be the guy to get hired. Okay, and you mentioned some of the components that the Wizards have or that they're kind of working, either working with or working against, you know, depending on your, your viewpoint on the situation. You've got Beal on, on a long-term deal with a fat no-trade clause, which I think might be the only no-trade clause in the entire NBA landscape at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Do you know off the top of your head, is it the only one? Oh, man, I think I it's feel a like it very is. short list. I feel like it's either the only one or like the list is like less than five names for sure. Um, so you got Beal, long-term deal. You've got Porzingis and Kuzma, both uh, with player options. I'm assuming both likely to opt out. Maybe maybe Porzingis picks up the option. Kuzma's, I, I think all signs are pointing towards him opting out at this point. You've got the eighth overall pick moving forward. Is this Wizards team in a place where a, a full teardown is needed? Or do they have enough pieces to maybe entertain the idea of a retool? Because reportedly, Winger has been given full authority to set the course for the Wizards franchise, which includes hiring a GM that we spoke about, but then also making decisions on the roster and the coaching staff with the idea that a rebuild is at least possible. Well, here's the thing about the Wizards, man. We have options. You know, if a new executive, you know, we're going to have a new GM. It really, if you look at several different factors, yes, he's been given a lot of leeway to rebuild and owner Ted Leonsis, you know, he said, I'm very comfortable going into a rebuild. Now, you know, there are different factors that kind of can even kind of push what direction. One thing is the business side, you know, Ted Leonsis, he just uh, set up and built uh course side luxury suites. So, I mean, looking at that, the business model, people aren't going to pay good money for that to watch a rebuild. But then if you look at, you know, the fact that Bradley bill, 
I mean, the ball's in his court. No pun intended. I mean, you know, he dictates with that no trade clause in the trade kicker where he goes. Um, he, he We do have the, the Wizards all-time scoring record coming up. So I know that, you know, he's been commenting that he definitely wants that record, and I get it. So there's a lot of different factors. His contract is a monster, but is is it un, is it untradeable? No. But if you look at him as a player, you know, he's he's going into his 30s. You know, he's a scoring guard. But, you know, his three-point shot percentage keeps going down year after year. And while he's still a marquee scorer in his league, you know, look at it from the perspective of an opposing GM. Would you trade for a guy who, you know, his skills are diminishing a little bit with that with that contract? So in my humble opinion, he's going to be here for a while. Unless, you know, they definitely find that deal that is too hard to pass up and he weighs no trade clause. But I think not so much rebuild, but retool. Um, I can definitely see Kate, uh, Chris Tapazingas coming back, signing long-term. Kyle Kuzma's kind of 50-50. Um, I, I actually kind of see him being a sign-and-trade candidate to maybe try to acquire a veteran point guard because me and my co-host Ed, we talk about it all the time, that we personally don't think that a rookie point guard can come in here and lead a veteran role, or, or a veteran core, that is. You know, we, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Anthony Black, Hassan Wallace coming out of the draft, but... You know, there's been talk of maybe Chris Paul, could he fit in D.C.? We we definitely believe that a veteran point guard would be best for this roster because it's tough to ask a rookie to come in and lead a veteran core. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of options. You know, in the, in the draft, I, I'm a firm believer that we need to go get another first-round pick because this draft is a monster. As you know, I mean, this is a loaded draft, man. So if we could come out of this draft with a, a point guard, and that's another thing. I'm not against getting a point guard through the draft. I just don't want him starting right away. You know, if he can learn behind a guy like Chris Paul or a veteran, for a year or two, and then slide him into the starting role. But if we can come out of this draft with a point guard and maybe a Cam Whitmore, I'd be very, very happy. Hey, if Cam Whitmore's all the way down there at eight for the Wizards, that's <laughs> that's a huge win. Because uh, I, I, I'd be looking at Cam Whitmore at number four for the Rockets. So you know, oh, keep, hey, keep keep your hands off him for now, man. Like that's <laughs> you know, let 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 me let me figure out what's going on in Houston first. No, um, look, uh, last thing for you here. What is this? What is this new era of? you know, kind of a, a revamped front office, right? Bring in winger, still looking to hire a general manager. What does this mean for Wes Unsell Jr. moving forward? Is he potentially on the hot seat? Does it kind of represent a fresh, clean start for him? How, how do you envision this kind of impacting him moving forward? Well, this was actually a really weird offseason for the Wizards so far because usually the GM chooses the coach. You know, we retained the coach, and I, I felt like it was a little too early, especially if you look at a lot of these candidates that just got fired. I mean, Monty Williams, the list goes on. For, you know, coaches that have playoff and championship experience, you know, once I said, I, I would best believe he goes on a hot seat because this new general manager and this new president, they're looking, they're definitely evaluating him this year. So it, it definitely behooves him to kind of take that leap going from year two to year three because you know what's on said he, he's not a terrible coach being a first-time head coach going in you know year two but he's had his issues you know bad rotations um there's been questions about you know the locker room him not getting the responses from players or the respect from players and, and maybe being a little too timid i mean there's been criticism but it definitely behooves him and, and he's not the only one coaching there's players i mean a lot of people on this team have to really play for their jobs and then this is going to be an evaluation year for the new president and new GM. So, you know, looking back at Wes, definitely, you know, he's really got to take a step forward this year if he wants to retain the job. Because, you know, on one hand, his father is well known in D.C., you know, being the only championship team, you know, MVP. But it can only go so far. You know, you know, when a new uh, president and new GM, they're looking for results in D.C. So I would definitely believe he's on a hot seat this year. 
What happens with the Wizards organization moving forward now that Michael Winger is in charge? Who will they ultimately decide on to be their general manager moving forward? What happens with Bradley Beal? Of course, y'all have covered for all of that and more over at Locked On Wizards. Brandon, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Yes, sir. Anytime. That's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts.